Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. It was the best of times. It was the work. She was the people's princess. We shall fight on the beaches. Oh, hey, man. These are the things that made England. We shall fight on the landing ground. These are the things that made I England. I have a body, but of a weak and evil woman. These are the things that made England. And a king of England, too. These are the things that made England. Cry God for Harry! And these are the things that made England. England! And St. George! These are the things that made England. Hello everyone and this is David Crowther here and we are in the second episode of our little mini-series on UK political parties and their impact on British politics and I have been joined by the person who had the idea originally actually and his name is Royfield Brown. I think you'll find that most good ideas come from me when it comes to this uh, dynamic duo David. Is that right? Royfield, is that right? Well, absolutely, maybe it is. Absolutely. I mean, let me be generous and say that it is right. And also, I mean, one of the problems is you're very astringent, which, as you know, means, you know, bitter, twisted, <laughs> alkaline. <laughs> and I had to deal with that through my sweetness. Yeah, it, 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 yeah, it keeps me from ripening, I think. <laughs> I think. I think you're already ripe I, enough. Thank you, uh, Royfield. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Anyway, we, got, we did get a bit of feedback. Yes, and mm-hmm. Lisa, I think, intimated that you were bringing some rigour back. I think the issue there is, first of all, she spelt Royfield, R-O-I-F-E-L-D, when she should have actually spelt it D-A-V-I-D. Also, that <laughs> also, <laughs> I think what's going on here is some hatred of heavy metal. I must admit, as a brummy, I'm not supposed to be. I know. I've always metal, been outraged by your disloyalty towards it. And it's supposed to be the soul of the white working class man, yeah. isn't it? Heavy metal, and also the soul of the white middle class man. To be honest, Royfield. Really? Well, in my case, mm. yeah. Heavy metal is a misnomer. It should be just be called white noise. <laughs> you obviously haven't heard the right <laughs> guitar solo. Now, the <laughs> the other thing. Moving on. What we were going to do in your original idea for this was Mm. that we were going to do Mm. different parties all the way through. We're going to try and do that a little bit today. But today we're basically going to do Reform Act to the beginning of democracy, if I can use that as one man, one vote. Although we might 
end a little earlier than that, but let's see how it goes. Now, originally mm-hmm. you said to me, why don't you do the Conservative Party? Would you like me to take me through your thought process connected with that decision? Well, you very much, to me, represent uh, history, tradition, the status quo, the Jack heel boot being on the neck of, of, of the working class. And you're class. the neck of the working <laughs> class, is that right, Brown? <laughs> I am I am very much representative that of the working here. classes who are struggling to have their time in the sun after toiling uh, for, for centuries uh, for the man. <laughs> you know, that, 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 that is me. Right. You're that, toiling that your way to California and Toronto and Birmingham and Notting Hill. <laughs> Toiler. Uh, there you go. Anyway, yeah. There you so go. I'd just there like to say uh, how outraged I am as a man who's never actually voted Tory. Not that I would necessarily not vote t- Tory if the time was right and the, and so on. But, you know, never actually mm. voted Tory. But that's what we were going to do. But this is this is very interesting because the 19th century is a real history of splits. Uh, the formation of the Liberal Party, then various schisms of the Liberal Party that invariably then join the Conservatives. So in a way, right, this is very apt. You know, the old Whigs actually are the establishment. They certainly are. Right. So I I put it to you, sir, that you are a Whiggish. We're not. I put it to you, sir, you are a Whiggish (laughs) Conservative. We're not PMQs now, Royford. Anyway, (laughs) I accept the mantle Mm -hmm. because I am deeply compliant and naturally Conservative. You're quite right. So what we're going to do is we're going to start with the aftermath of the great reform act in 1832 which is where we ended Mm -hmm. and uh, what we have is a bit of a period where earl gray who'd seen the reform act through still around there's a bit of toing and froing but what really happens most importantly is we get one of i think britain's finer prime ministers uh, who is sir robert peel mm-hmm. one of the only uh, folks who try- actually tried to do any good in ireland unlike the vast majority of english politicians robert peel is a in a way a dyed in the wool wig in terms of principle and thought not really in terms of social but i suppose these days you'd call him a wet a tory wet so he has plenty of ideas which you might think of as kind of Whiggish. But it's under Peel that we normally see people saying that the Conservative Party starts. And it's at this time after 1832 that they have in the 1834 election, you really begin to get the development of party. So one of the significant things in the 1834 election is something called the Tamworth Manifesto. I can never say the Tamworth Manifesto without thinking of the Tamworth Two. Who were the Tamworth Two, just as an aside, Royfield? Uh, David, you've got me. The Tamworth Two, Royfield, were a couple of pigs that escaped about (laughs) about 15 (laughs) years ago. And we went, the whole nation was focused on finding the Tamworth Two. That was absolutely fantastic. I love that. Anyway, the Tamworth Manifesto was a campaigning leaflet we're used now to have people having manifestos and saying right this is what we're going to do if we get in power which is useful because we then know what they're going to studiously ignore and not do when they actually get into power (laughs) but the the Tamworth (laughs) manifesto was the start of Peel saying right look this is what we're going to do if we get into government not in a lot of detail but it's certainly the start of that process the election in 1841 
uh, was the first one, interesting fact, where an opposition triumphed. What had happened all the way up to this in the political process is that the party of government actually always won because they had all the powers of patronage. The prime minister might change. The leader might change because the king might select a different minister or the queen might select a different minister or PM. But in actual fact, the incumbent usually won the election, almost always won the election. With the Great Reform Act, we have many more contested elections and we actually have a parliament, a party coming in. This is the way we expect it to happen now is that, you know, people will get bored of the old guys, although the thing about the pendulum swing is really not very accurate when you actually look at the facts. But nonetheless, we kind of expect new people to come in, new broom. Just, you, just before you go on, um, so 1841, we now have uh, Queen Victoria on the throne. But um, something significant happens under King William, uh, King William the Fourth. Isn't he going to be the last monarch who's going to try and influence uh, Parliament, try and place a minister? Okay. What William the Fourth does is he tries to put Wellington into office. He can't form mm -hmm. an administration. This is all about stopping the Reform Act, isn't it? Mm -hmm. He puts. He tries Robert Peel to go in to try and stop the Reform Act, but Robert Peel won't form an administration. And then he has to be forced to elect, to put in Tory peers or to threaten it in order to get the Reform Act through. But you're absolutely right in principle. William IV is really where we, we know for sure that it is Parliament that controls the monarch. And actually, Queen Victoria's reign starts off with uh, a Whig, Lord Melbourne, who she absolutely adores and she doesn't like Robert Peel. But her reign is a key for the final disappearance of royal influence, practical royal influence. I mean, there's influence still, but constitutional power really, really decreases for the monarch under Queen Victoria. Yeah, and I thought it was just important for us to... to notice that really to really mark that because we really do talk about it when we have the Hanoverians in and I said you know the Ladybird Book of History will say that the first two Georges weren't that really bothered so then Parliament takes on many more of uh, the responsibilities which were the, those of the those of of the monarch but now we see absolutely the end don't we of the monarch really having yeah. some serious influence in, in politics. It, it's gone. It's gone. Absolutely right. Totally agree. So Robert Peel, who replaces Melbourne, much to Victoria's disgust after the election of 1841. And again, there's another landmark there where the monarch is forced to accept a PM they don't like because of an election specifically, rather than shenanigans going on in Parliament between groups forming and unforming. Peel and Gladstone, Gladstone will be the famous liberal leader who we'll talk about later. Peel and Gladstone are really very similar. They're in a direct line of succession, really, from the Whigs. So it's confusing that Peel is considered uh, a Tory, but he is. Mm -hmm. There's a very famous quote about Robert Peel because his policies were therefore quite Whiggish and quite liberal uh, with a little L. And there's a very famous quote which gets used for about Disraeli later, actually. So the right honourable gentleman caught the Whigs bathing and walked away with their clothes. He has left them in the full enjoyment of their liberal positions and he is himself a strict 
conservative of their garments. What the quote <laughs> is saying is, actually won the election because he nicked the Whigs' policies. And it's often mm. used about 1867, but it's actually Peel in 1845, uh, the next election. So uh, Gladstone, and you probably were getting to this, and you did make the link between Peel and Gladstone. And Gladstone was a Peelite, and he's going to be a Peelite who is a liberal, and he's the real kind of emotional founding of the Liberal Party, though Russell is going to use the term, Lord Russell uses the term, um, round about this time, for, 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 for the first time, and he really does adopt the name uh, by in 1839 that the Whig Party is the Liberal Party, but it's not officially for another 20-odd years it's going to be used. Uh, but what exactly was a P-Lite? You, you've explained um, kind of emotionally that they've that he's a Conservative or he's a Tory. You know, we're in that kind of mix mm. now, aren't we? Uh, but he's but he has these liberal clothing. But what exactly does that mean on, on a practical level? What is the one policy which is, let's say, P-Lite? So we can understand why Gladstone will call himself a P-Lite as well. Uh, that's quite difficult to answer because I think a lot of this is about is about mood, you know, when we talked about the difference between Whig and a Tory and basic attitude. But I would have said that Peel is quite, relatively speaking for the time, is reasonably interventionist. What will define him is the argument between protectionism and free trade, and that will also bring him down. But he does try... To reform, he certainly tries in Ireland, for example. So Disraeli dismissed Peel as a man who appointed Tories to office, but then pursued Whig measures. And Disraeli, who is obviously a Conservative, would be very would condemn Peel in his memory. I don't know if that's a very good answer, but such is the best I can give you. No, uh, considering what we're going to come up to, uh, the repeal of the Corn Laws, that makes complete sense. Okay, so yes, that is indeed what we will come to. As throughout the 19th century, Ireland has a lot of influence and we have the great hunger from in the mid-1840s. And the price of corn is critical to trying to resolve that issue. And as far as the Tories are concerned, they believe that the agricultural interests must be defended. And that is the core of the 19th century Tory party until much later, it's all about the country, agriculture, the gentry. And so they think free trade, getting rid of the Corn Law tariffs would allow a flood of cheap grain into the country and ruin them. But Peel is a man of principle and Peel says, no, this is not right. We must repeal the Corn Laws. And he manages to do it with the help of the Whigs. And it's critical to the psyche of political parties thereafter because this great split which leaves a rump in the Tory party of the ultras who are absolutely just gentry backwoodsmen that's all that's left of the conservative party after that split and many of the peelites go into what becomes the liberal party as you've mentioned and ever since that time people have been in politics have been obsessed with splits. So you can see today, everybody is constantly talking for about a unity. I mean, of course, once in a, in a political party, once you've said we must have unity, you know you're knackered because nobody asks for unity. If you have to ask for unity, by definition, you haven't got it and you're never going to get it. But the split is absolutely seminal and it can 
condemns the Tories to decades of opposition. So Derby and Disraeli, Stanley, the Earl of Derby, and a young, new, hopeful Benjamin Disraeli take over the Tory party and they get a few snippets of government. So in 1852, they actually managed to be in government for about a year or so. But nobody knows who these people are, who Derby and Disraeli are. Who are these people? And the Duke of Wellington famously sat at the back of Parliament. He said, and somebody says, you know, it's the government has been formed by the Earl of Derby and Benjamin Disraeli. And he said, who? Who? Because he was a bit deaf and he didn't recognise them. So the 1852 Conservative government, brief as it was, has always been known to history as the who who ministry. <laughs> Just before we move on, this repeal of the Corn Laws uh, over tariffs is obviously really important um, in terms of the formation of Liberals and Tories, kind of going forward. And it's really important because it it spurs uh, British economic growth uh, in terms of this scope. Uh, late Victorian imperial phase um, around, um, you know, uh, free trade and, and not tariffs. But the issue of tariffs was something which is incredibly important all throughout the 19th century. Um, it's one of the issues, uh, the nullification crisis, where South Carolina wants to impose, ha- wants to have tariffs, uh, which leads uh, to uh, the, the American Civil War. Uh, all of these emerging industrialized economies are talking about tariffs, whether you should have them to protect your industries or whether you should uh, release them for specific industries so that um, there would be free trade. And this is something which is going to really be uh, the rallying call of the Liberal Party uh, going on in the middle and the late 19th century, free trade. And actually also tariff reform will split the Tories again, the Conservatives again at the end of the 19th century into the beginning of the 20th, when the argument is about special tariffs to preference empire or mm. or not. So again, it's a, it's a very strong live issue. Joseph Chamberlain and all of that. Um, Chamberlain and all that. It, you know, it, it, it really does show us that the world back then was on the cusp of globalisation as we'd understand it. You know, with goods, whether it's manufactured, well, it wasn't necessarily manufactured goods, but with raw goods, commodities being cheaper to source from elsewhere and how that then would would help your domestic economy. Uh, And one of the things about the repeal of the Corn Laws, uh, which is really significant, is that it's the top 10%. It is the landed uh, gentry. Um, who fundamentally don't do well, those people who um, own the production of, of, in effect, of those goods, of, of corn, of those staples, sorry. But uh, for the rest of the other 90%, they boom because of it. And as you said, this is really key, um, not only in terms of British history, economic history, but also Irish immigration. You know, that famine in Ireland is going to lead to Irish emigration in Chicago, Detroit, in Australia, etc. You know, and which is only recently just stopped from the island of Ireland. So is Ireland depleted uh, because of that famine? Yes, and also an awful lot of them come to Britain. 
And mm -hmm. that has a major impact on society, on religion, on society. You know, Liverpool Football. is an Irish town, effectively. Yeah. Football. Well, you know what? And it's, it's funny. People always say Liverpool is an Irish town. Glasgow, because of um, Rangers and Celtic, which is going to happen about 50 years afterwards. But also Birmingham. It's a massive Irish town, which never really gets, gets talked about. Is that yeah, right? A third of the white folks in Birmingham are of Irish descent. One third. Is that why you speak like that? Sorry, if I said the wrong thing. Moving swiftly on. Moving swiftly on. <laughs> <laughs> Moving swiftly on. That's my rubbish Birmingham accent. Sorry about that. I formally withdraw it. So, uh, yes, absolutely. So the backswimmen, the ultras, Derby and Israeli are consigned to the back benches, struggle to ever try and form a ministry. And they will, when they do form a ministry, their job will be to try and convince the world that they're actually a credible party of government which for quite a long mm -hmm. time they aren't. Meanwhile, the world is now run by the Whigs for a short period after the split in 1846. Russell is the, the Whig prime minister, and he's this is really the back end of the life of the Whigs. You alluded to the move from Whig to Liberal, which mm -hmm. effectively happens after a man who once was asked at a party... If you were not English, what nationality would you like to be? If you were not English, Royfield, what nationality would you like to be? Yikes. Going to have to hurry. That's a really tricky one, right? Because I'm quite proud of being Jamaican, English, British, mm -hmm. and a bit of a mix-up. Uh, I don't know. I'm going to say Italian because I quite like uh, the weather and the food. Indeed. Well, Viscount Palmerston's answer was, if I was not to be an Englishman, I would want to be an Englishman. It's not a bad answer, a is it? Coat. I mean, it's a great <laughs> answer. I mean, it's a bit annoying. <laughs> it's a great answer. For the rest it of the is, world. It's a great coat. But it's a good answer. Anyway, so mm. I've mentioned his name there, uh, Viscount Palmerston, who was quite old when he came to office. There is a famous meeting in 1859, I believe, where it is said that the Liberal Party is formed. Whether that's actually true or not, the word liberal, as you were saying, had been used well before that, to be honest, but not in a really formal sense. But from about 1859, it begins, begins to be used in a formal sense. And what's happened is one of those separations and, uh, and coalescences. In the early 19th century, you had a group of people called the Radicals, William Cobbett, Richard Cobden, John Bright, who had really pushed the Reform Act and afterwards pushed at further reform uh, with Peel. And those Radicals come together with the Whigs and together they form the Liberal Party. And it's the Liberal Party, which probably you might want to take over at this point, you can if you, if you want. They begin to espouse free trade in a big way. So this is where Britain's industrial dominance is really becoming clear. We are in now in the heart of the century where Britain economically and indeed politically rules the world. And of course, free trade works delightfully well if you're big and strong. Works less well if you need to protect nascent industry. Free trade works, of course, beautifully for Britain in the situation. So you have a new party, and it's led by Viscount Palmerston. 
but he still has uh, many Whiggish tendencies. He, he and Russell are going to be seen as the two terrible old men who, as far as um, Gladstone and the new more, let's say, interventionist, if not radical liberals, kind of see them as kind of holding back the full interventionist might and also kind of the moral crusade that the Liberal Party is going to go on, at least an, an element the Liberal Party is going to go on in the late, the middle to late 19th century, uh, of which Gladstone is very much kind of the tip of the tip of that spear. I once went to a home, a stately home, I'm trying to remember the name of it, north of London, where Lord Palmerston, until he was quite old, I think he died around about 80, was a, a very virile man. <laughs> Daily, he would go for runs and jump over uh, gates. He'd hurdle over them, Sorry. and he would he would take one or two of the uh, the wenches there and 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 have his way with them. And his, his wicked he, way. He died. His wicked oh. way. His wicked way. And he died <laughs> whilst mid wickedness in, in Congress in mid wickedness um, over a pool table. So we were shown the 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 room oh, where it happened, where he expired, uh, whilst. Uh, pleasuring or um a, 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 a young a young wench lord lord palmerston was quite the man very virile but very fit until a quite a stately age however at the the point of climax uh the, go, right, the good lord called him, him. He said your, so, your, your time's up you've had enough palmy come in number yeah, boat number and, uh, yes okay. <laughs> excellent well that's a great story which i did not know was it called brocket hall in hatfield by any chance yes that's go. exactly Brockett Hall. Hall. Well done. Which is also famous for, I, I don't know if it's a descendant of Lord Palmerston. Yuppie, back in the late 80s, oh, really? did an insurance fraud and he had a whole load of Ferrari Testarossas and put them in the in the lake there and had the insurance person come round and say, look, they're gone, they're gone. And this insurance person was just about to sign off on this and give him his money to say that he's for our testarosses have been stolen and he wandered over to the lake and looked down and saw saw, saw the red ah. cars in the lake <laughs> yeah anyway brocket hall great. is a great place very good it's a i great should go place. i shall go okay i mean palmerston although he came to office very late in, in age and although as you say he's always considered in a sense a wig he did a load mm. of modern things because what he was that really wigs weren't it was intensely populist he was as we've just discussed, incredibly patriotic, very energetic. Roy Hattersley said of him that he spoke for England and in consequence, people loved him. He absolutely played to the gallery, just like a modern politician. He used written communications to really get in touch and sell the idea of the Liberal Party and his, his policies. Mm. So in that sense, he's quite a modern politician. I think you made the point at the end of the last episode that the Great Reform Act is going to really change British politics. It brings in the middle classes, doesn't it? The urban classes. And you start to see that with the premiership of Palmerston going onwards. These these are people who realise they have to pivot and, and speak to a different type of Britain. And, and then also rising industrialisation 
means that more people are actually reading and writing and actually really are following the news of the day. And this is important for politicians. You know, they need to get their quotes in newspapers and to help influence public opinion. The middle of the 19th century starts to feel uh, very familiar to us in terms of politics and the feed loop back between newspapers and politicians, etc. It's speaking to a wider constituency than they ever did before. Absolutely. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Okay, so in 1832, Royfield Brown, a young man, a young man, high Tory, whose father was had been in the slave trade, comes to into Parliament. What mm-hmm. is his name? He's the son of a Scot. Uh, is it Gladstone? Maybe? It is William Ewart Gladstone. And this means we have arrived at one of those great double acts. You've got, as we know, we've got great double acts throughout history. We've got Little Large. Cannon and Ball. Cannon and Ball. <laughs> Crowther and Brown. We've also got Gladstone and Israeli. Obviously, there's more to this than just the rival between Gladstone and Israeli, but that really has always captured historians' imagination and people at the time, mm. actually, the imagination. Disraeli is the quicker wit, probably nowhere near as fine a man as William Gladstone. But he described beautifully William Gladstone as a man without a single redeeming flaw. Wow. Which is just a great line, isn't it? And sums up William Ewart Gladstone. Very, very serious, very, very high-minded. Famously, Victoria was supposed to have said to him, maybe it's apocryphal, we are not a public meeting, Mr Gladstone, because of the way he spoke to her. Always lecturing, always passionate. Mm. But a very, Mm. very fine man, a very moral man, again equally famous, given to taking prostitutes off the streets and trying to redeem them. Oh, yeah. Very, very religious, but a strong moral sense. A man who said, I had never been able to find the quote, but who said, look, Mm. we must look at what we have done in Ireland in the face and put it right. And that will define, in some ways, his career and lead to the end of his career. His career will be wrecked on the rocks of Irish home rule and his attempt to put those injustices right. So he's a very fine man, but you wouldn't want to invite him to a dinner party. (laughs) Yeah, he did. The person you would want to invite to a dinner party was Benjamin Disraeli. Absolutely. Now, just... Quick question, and I genuinely don't know the answer to this, so I'm not setting you up in a way. We now have the first Asian prime minister, the first non-Christian prime minister in in, in the United Kingdom. Not our first ethnic minority, though. Exactly. Exactly the point. Right. So the first ethnic minority is Disraeli. Correct. And many people don't know this. And the clue is in his surname, Disraeli, as to yes. his ethnic origin. It really is there. How was 
his elevation to the prime ministership seen? I mean, well, the first thing to say, he manages to get himself into a position of influence because the Conservative Party is absolutely shattered by the Corn Law in dispute in 1846. And so there's almost nothing left. There's tumbleweed flying through the Conservative Party. So it's a perfect opportunity for someone with a bit of talent to get involved. He'd also built a career already around writing, and he writes a lot of books. There's oh, Benjamin Disraeli. And actually, I read a few at school because I was a goody two-shoes at school, a teacher's pet. You sound rather blind. boring. Yes, I was extremely boring. Certainly none of my teachers would remember my name from Adam, probably most of the kids either. So he's got a reputation already, and what he builds up is this one-nation Toryism. He talks about it in Sybil, for example. He always faces a background noise of anti-Semitism. You know, there's no doubt that people were aware that his father was a Jew. And that's definitely in the air. But of course, it doesn't stop him getting to that position of power because he's a man of talent and he's a brilliant speaker in Parliament. He's inspirational. And slowly, bit by bit, he and Derby turn the Tory party into a credible party of government. And one of the crucial things that this happens under Russell's, I think it's Russell's government, Gladstone, Gladstone is becoming the powerhouse of that ministry, despite the fact he's not yet PM. And then he becomes PM, does Gladstone, in 1868, I think is mm -hmm. his first ministry. But before that, he tries to get a reform act through because since 1832, there hasn't been any more parliamentary re reform. And frankly, the franchise isn't being extended in the UK and we're slipping behind everybody else. You know, the French have had rebellions in, in 1848. We've had the Chartist movement in 1848, which you may like we should talk about. But that hasn't led so far to reform, although all the things the Chartist wants, well, four, five of the four lead, are done well before the end of the century. Anyway, so he introduces the Reform Act. The, t the Conservatives get together and they reject... The Reform Act. They do it down. They say, no, we, we're not going to have this. And then, darn me, if Disraeli doesn't pass a Reform Act, which is very, dis very Disraeli. This guy is, is strong on intelligence and wit, short on principles. So he does this very, very... And this is where the thing about him stealing the, the Liberals' clothes comes up again. Mm -hmm. But famously, he then gets... They then lose the next election... So famously, somebody says that Disraeli introduced the Reform Act and passed the Reform Act and the country where it said, thank you, Mr. Gladstone, because, they, you know, they knew they're not idiots. <laughs> they knew where if this reform would really come from. But it does establish the Conservative Party again as a credible party of government. And Disraeli himself says that the Conservative Party was a national party or nothing. He knew that extending the franchise would do nothing but good for the Conservative Party. We believe, innately, I think, tell me if I'm wrong, that the working classes are going to be more radical. Is that not true? Absolutely. But it's not. Disraeli understood this. He understood the innate conservative of, conservatism of people. And he will capitalise that later in his, in his next ministry in 1874 when he makes... I think it's 1876, when he makes Victoria uh, Empress of India. Because he knows what really drives people 
And it's, it's, not, it's not a simple equation, working class equals radical reformist. He understands that. That's why he's no fear about extending the franchise. And he convinces the Conservative Party of that. Anyway, no, I, I think that uh, is, is a brilliant point for us to to understand, because as I said in the previous podcast, one of the things which is going to be the guiding light of the conservatives, whether you want to call them Tories or conservatives, but that grouping politically is pragmatism. Uh, and yes. it's all and it's always pragmatic as a way of staving off catastrophe at a later date you know so eventually they have to move they have to change and they do to stave off social revolution there's a reason why in the 18th and the 19th century and and, and let's say even 20th century britain doesn't have violent revolution but it goes through massive societal change and it's in large part because the party of the vested interest sees which way the wind is blowing and can always make that move just before and and also you're right to to point out that we are now going into this high phase of british imperialism and Disraeli realized that many working class people felt a great pride in that, that, what was it, a third of the globe, a quarter of the globe is going to be colored pink on a map. And that gave them a national sense of pride. And, and, and that would induce them to some of them to actually vote conservative. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think you're absolutely right. The watchword of the Tory party is pragmatism and you can see the chaos that ensues when they forget that basic fact. Mm. The other thing is I would mention the pendulum swing. You know, we kind of think of, oh, Labour's turn last time, that'll be the Tories to and fro. And actually, that's not really the pattern. The pattern tends to be bursts of reform followed by quite long periods of conservatism. Mm. For example, Clement Attlee may be the most influential ministry in modern times. And yet he gets turfed out and replaced by Vincent Churchill, a Victorian. Yeah. So that's really the model, isn't it? And that's, as you say, the Tories pragmatism that plays a big part in that. Yeah. And, and what they don't do, unlike, let's say, um, some, some uh, ministries in, in Europe, is then to rip up the, the reforms that went before. You know, they see it as the new reality and that they have to make them work. Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely true. We should do William Gladstone, give him his due, because this is one of the, the greatest prime ministers of all time, I think, in, in British history. There is a blizzard of legislation in his ministry, in particular of 1868 to 74, and a blizzard of social legislation. A whole load of reform of trying to deal with the fact that Britain has become a different place, a much more industrial place. And in his second ministry also, that reforming zeal and social and economic and religious reform will keep keep going. In terms of like reform, there's going to be the Elementary Education Act of 1870. And it has to be said as well, that he is seminal, not only because he almost defines our view of that late Victorian age in terms of his very moralistic 
and, and whatever, which wasn't necessarily the mores of the time by any stretch of the imagination. You know, Queen Victoria was famously having uh, having loud sex with with, with uh, Prince Albert all, all, all over Osborne House and stuff. But we always think of the Victorians as being quite puritanical and, you know, and, and sex and whatever, is, and pleasure is kind of pushed away. But that's definitely Gladstone's MO. But he's going to be prime minister on and off for 30 years. You know, that's another reason why he's just so seminal. Not only yeah. does he kind of give us the, the mores of the time. So his prime ministership is 1868 to 74, then 1880 comes back to 1885, a brief time in 1886. And then he has a last hurrah in, in, in 1892 to 1994. And he's going to leave the Liberal Party a little bit kind of rudderless when he goes. They don't really know what they are. There are competing factions of imperialists and free traders. And then also with, with nascent kind of socialists, there are some kind of working class uh, liberals there who were, and the Libs have always had that radical wing, but he seems to be able to put a relative um, lid on things. But that whole thing of Ireland is always going to be the thing which is going to do, you know, which is always going to be uh, a vein of continuity through um, his prime ministerships and, and through his opposition, Ireland and Home Rule, which helps create uh, the Liberal Unionist Party as well. You know, the Liberals are going to splinter uh, many times in the late end of the 19th century. Um, I was going to read you a couple of quotes actually about Gladstone. One of them is, just to give you David, an idea of how radical... Say, I, I love it when, when I do these things because, you know, you actually come with research. You've got quotes. It's a shocker, isn't it? I know. But you've all got all that stuff in your head. It really <laughs> irritates me. You're just like a mate I used to have at university who basically got a 2-1 by lying in bed having sex with his girlfriend and reading the Ladybird history books. But you know what, David... He got a 2-1 degree, whereas I stayed, said every minute of my life in but... the library... But, but you know what, David, I didn't get a 2-1. I was kicked out. So anyway, I'm not like oh, your you? friend okay. at all. I'm not like your friend. Not like him then. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, you were to me anyway until you just ruined it. So I'll just, I'll just forget what you said then. Anyway, intelligence isn't about degrees anyway. Anyway, so this, he supported the London Dockers in the strike of 1889, which is pretty much unthinkable. I mean, he was in opposition at the time, but still... And in his speech, he said, in the common interests of humanity, this remarkable strike and the results of this strike, which have tended somewhat to strengthen the condition of labour in the face of capital, is the record of what we ought to regard as satisfactory as a real social advance that tends to a fair principle of division of the fruits of industry. Now, I find it quite difficult to think of Keir Starmer saying that. You know, that feels a very socialist statement of labor versus capital which i think is very surprising in the world of victorian grandees mm. the other quote is by disraeli of course we're near the end of gladstone's first ministry there's been a blizzard of legislation so much so that the liberal ministers have just for the moment exhausted all their ideas and there's a sense of weariness dizzy seized on this and in the house of commons he points at the front bench and declares you behold a range of exhausted volcanoes, not a flame, flickers on a single pallid crest. But the situation is still dangerous. There are occasional earthquakes and ever and anon the dark rumbling of the sea. <laughs> but, you know, it's a lovely image because they've done, they've reformed and they've sort of run out of ideas for a minute. But Disraeli is saying, look, get rid of this lot because they'll be back and there will be more. 
And so Disraeli kind of Disraeli takes up the thing of reform, though, as well. And this is one of the strengths of Gladstone is it's. He's a bit like Jason Robinson. You don't do rugby D, but Jason Rob- Robinson, best fullback England's ever had. And he ran like Billio. Whenever he got the ball, he just said, right, I'm off. And off he went. And the whole bloody team had to follow him because they knew if he'd, they'd left him behind, the ball would be turned over. Gladstone's a bit like that. He drove reform and everybody had to follow. Mm. The Tory party, until Salisbury, who will come to a minute, had to follow. Anyway, we're taking ages, which is a shocker. So we need to get on, don't we? This is the time where party is really now king. Loyalty to party is as important as your policies, what you believe in, your principles. So this is where we come to a bit of Gilbert O'Sullivan. There's, in Aya Lamphy, there's a rather nice line where it says, every boy and every gal that's into the world alive is either a little liberal or else a little conservative. England and Britain is now are now defining themselves about their political allegiance, whether they're a conservative or liberal. You're either one or the other. There is no longer any moving cross benches without consequences. Party organisation is getting much stronger. So I don't. Central office is established at this time. The policy of having a chief whip who enforces party and voting voting discipline, I believe, has has now also arrived. Disraeli, again, another quote from Disraeli, said to one young uh, MP, damn your principles, stick to your party. So, you know, absolutely no concept (laughs) of sticking to your principles. It's your party that counts. Also, a much repeated quote about this time is England does not love coalitions. And of course, as we know, our political structure does not lend towards coalitions that favours big parties, first party post. I'm going to quote Mark Twain at you since we have to have uh, an American thinker in every episode. And he says, men think they think upon great political questions, and they do, but they think with their party, not independently. Where the party leads, they will follow, whether for right or honour, or through blood and dirt and a mush of mutilated morals. So Mark Twain puts it very nicely, as always, not a fan of what party does to politics. So party politics absolutely rules the roost. So in 1886, as you you have referred to, along with the Irish Home Rule Act, there I think there are about four Irish Home Rule Acts, aren't there? The Liberal Party splits. And as you say, the Liberal Unionists, who essentially, in in a way, are possibly the old... Whig wing of the party, very traditional. They become liberal unionists and they then begin to align with the conservative unionists. So you get this great split. This split is the reason I didn't get into York University because the bloke <laughs> who interviewed me said, "Can I? could I think of a time when the party's split on blah, blah, blah. I can't remember what. He had his feet on the table at this point and he had red socks. So he was a bit of an arse anyway, but anyway. And I went to this one, 1886, when obviously he wanted me to go for 1846. So, wah, wah, oops. I might, maybe, I, there could be another reason I didn't get it, but I, I don't believe so. I think it's the fault of the liberal unionists. Were you wearing like a uh, a heavy metal t-shirt, like, you know, No, Iron I was wearing Maiden. a suit. Okay, all right. I was wearing a suit. All right. Good Lord, I was being interviewed for crying aloud. <laughs> 
<laughs> but if I had been wearing my brushed denim rush jacket, I'm sure I'd have been straight in. <laughs> well, you labour on that misapprehension. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I do. Anyway, he didn't, he, I didn't get to York University, so that's that. So, should we move back to the, the Conservative Party then? This period of liberal ascendancy punctuated by conservative administration. Disraeli has one long ministry. He has, I think, about two or three, a couple of year ones. And then he has one from 1874 to 1880, I think, or something like that. Mm -hmm. Gladstone and the liberals have essentially, I think, remodeled the British state into one that aimed to serve the interests of all in society. That's what I think Gladstone is often credited with. He himself was a man inspired by Pitt the Younger, who tried very much to do the same and also a very principled politician. It establishes a neutral civil service. There is, as you've mentioned, social legislation. There is electoral reform and the becomes another electoral reform act. Like Palmerston, but even more so, he's a very visible politician. So he's there's this very famous Midlothian campaign. And this is people now going to the people speaking on the hustings, speaking to mass meetings. He's known, I think, as the railway prime minister or something because he's always on the railway, travelling around the countryside, talking to mass meetings. Number 10, Downing Street, becomes an administration centre, not just a house for the PM. And the PM itself, as a position, becomes the originator of a legislative programme in a way that it possibly hadn't been before. You know, it's Gladstone who drives the concept of what we're going to be about in this particular administration. Very individualised. It's a bit the same with Disraeli as well. He becomes known as the grand old man later in his career. You know, this is a, a leviathan, a giant who has dominated politics. Modern admirers, Tony Blair, Jack Straw, just for examples. Interesting line about the fact that we have the Midlothian um, election where Gladstone actually goes out and campaigns and speaks to the hoi polloi's you called them because uh, American politics if we use that just as a, a compare and contrast had a similar model whereby if you're running to be president you didn't actually campaign it was seen as uncouth to be to be seen campaigning and not quite at the same time but uh, in the election of 1896 we're going to have the candidate McKinley actually go out and campaign for the first time. What the Americans used to do, who were running uh, for president, they would just stop stop at home and it would be surrogates that would actually go out and, and talk on their behalf because Washington sets in place this uh, notion that um, you are reluctantly, you reluctantly take up the reins, so to speak. So other people spoke spoke on your behalf. British politics isn't quite like that, but um, we do kind of mirror this lack of campaigning. But as we've said, through the Great Reform Act and then subsequent Reform Acts, we have this new burgeoning franchise. We have newspapers talking about politics and in effect, uh, politicians then addressing uh, editorials in, in Parliament, etc., which then leads to general campaigning as we'd kind of understand it today. And that is very significant. So that's Gladstone. Goodbye, Billy, because then he is replaced in the chaos of liberal unionism and uh, Irish home rule. He is replaced by a man who is related to Elizabeth I, first minister, whatever we're going to call him, secretary of state 
who was... The Marquis of Salisbury? He was indeed the Marquis of Salisbury. The original one, of course, was William Cecil. So he's, a, oh, sorry. he's part of the same clan. But yes, you answered the, mm. obviously the right question. He is a man who is the most dyed-in-the-wool conservative you can imagine. And he's in power for a long time. Here is a quote from the Marx of Salisbury in 1859, defining conservatism as hostility of radicalism. Incessant, implacable hostility is the essence of conservatism. So this is not a man for compromise mm. with the lefties. In 1879, he was heard to say, whatever happens will be for the worse, and therefore <laughs> it is in our interests that as little should happen as possible. And this is him on the threshold of a long period in power. So I think Marcus Salisbury comes to power in 1885, and I think doesn't get chucked out until... 1902. His time is going to be punctuated by Gladstone and the Earl of uh, Rosebery. But what is fascinating is just our collective memory, because we do think of uh, Disraeli and we think of Gladstone. And then if you were to ask the, uh, the average person in the street, if you say, tell me another 19th century politician, they might come up with Palmerston. You know, Palmerston's name is out there in the ether. He was there for a long time and it's almost yeah. seems to be lost to our collective memory. Absolutely. He is also the prime minister, though, at the time of the Boer War. And the Boer War was very unpopular, although the Khaki ele election of 1900 kept him in power when he was under quite a lot of pressure. But the Boer War was not popular in Britain. The liberal leader called the methods used in the Boer War as the methods of barbarism. Mm. For the liberals, it gave the lie to the high moral tone of empire that had been adopted, you know, that this is, the empire was about civilising the world, not just a question of power, of money, what, um, imperial do dominance, whatever. But for Salisbury, this was another conservative issue, that fighting decolonisation was an issue for him, as it, it would be for the conservatives all the way through to the 1960s. Mm. essentially and that election is going to see lloyd george who's going to be another lion of the liberal party maybe arguably the, the last true lion also rail against the boer war we have to kind of mark imperialism and it's really good that you've brought it up there because whether you're a liberal or you are a conservative you're pro britain going out and painting bits of the globe red but the liberals, they're slightly more angsty about it. For them, it's a civilizing mission, whether it's to take Christianity or civilization to the bits of the globe, where the, the Tories, the conservatives are much more like, isn't this kind of great type of thing? But there is this issue uh, around liberalism as to, is this some kind of moral civilizing crusade and stuff? And we see elements of this, with whether it is the Boer War or whether it is Irish Home Rule. You know, there, there's a sense that there is a contradiction there that, that, that the Liberals have about personal liberty and then enforcing it on others, which, which the, the, the Conservatives don't necessarily have. I'm not going to dispute that. I, I'm not sure I know the answer, but you, I'll take it as read. Another thing which kind of defines that is in 1832, when the, the slave trade is completely abolished in the, in the British Empire, very quickly, 
Britain becomes the world's policeman around slavery. And what it does is it polices the seas to stop slavery. And as late as 1914, there is a British squadron off the coast of West Africa uh, dissuading would-be slavers. And you can see photographs as late as, let's say, 1908, where a, a British ship has intercepted a slave ship heading to the Americas and freed African slaves you know, and taking them back to the coast of Africa. And this is part of this uh, moral conundrum. What are we doing with, with this empire? And part of it, as far as the liberals are concerned, is a civilizing mission. And uh, Britain's role in being the foremost anti anti-slavery power when they abolish it is most definitely evidence of that. So... We are going to leave the story in 1906. Do you have any final closing insights and pearls to th cast before us, Roy Field, or should we say goodbye to another? I time? think we've you've, we've done really. You have done a, a wonderful job guiding us through this period of what about 70 years. Uh, it's um, seminal in terms of understanding modern British politics. We kind of have two parties who really are truly parties now. Go in and out of power peaceful transfer of power something um, our transatlantic cousins, cousins always bang on about but uh, we absolutely did, did did do that without a big massive civil war in the middle as well you know proper peaceful transfer of power you know this is a really a time where if you look at it in the the mirror of hindsight is it the mirror of hindsight in hindsight um you can be a conservative <laughs> Well, it could be the mirror of hindsight. <laughs> you, you, can, you can be conservative. You say it as you want it, right, Phil. You can be a conservative or a liberal and actually say that your party defined this period. We have imperial Britain or reforming Britain. And you really do see how the, the two-party system worked to a degree. But still, what we don't have is complete adult suffrage. And what we do have is a working class who, through industrialization, have more money in its pocket. This is a time when we're going to have something as mundane as fish and chips, which we did a whole episode on, go from being the food of immigrants in London to being the national dish because of the power of the railways. And we have this new working class consciousness, which is brewing up, which starts to be really noticed uh, politically within the liberal wings uh, of politics, but is going to break forth and create its own party and help to define the 20th century. So I think this is a an opportune time uh, for us to pause, sir. Okay, I do want to say one more thing, actually, because in going so back to So it's not a time for us to pause because you've got more to say. It is not. A, well, it's not a time. It might be a time for you to pause. Okay, all right. <laughs> but I think we haven't done justice. <laughs> going back to your point that you were making about the peaceful transfer of power as a regular occurrence, 1848, I think we haven't talked enough about what we should do in Chartism. Yes. Because 1848 is the year of rebellion and there are revolutions all over Europe. And it affects the UK as well. And the UK has chartism and chartism wants a vote for every man aged 21 years and above of sound mind. A secret ballot, no property qualification for MPs, payment for members, equal constituencies. They also want annual parliaments. They don't win and they disappear. And there is no revolution. But 
of those six demands that they make in their mass meetings they have, and it's a very terrifying time for the establishment who really think there is going to be a revolution, like elsewhere, like France, for example, all the things they want become adopted by Parliament. And I think this is a way that British politics works. It is evolution. It takes a bit longer. Mm. It is interesting that last representation of the People Act, uh, which is 1884, does see uh, the franchise expanded in the way that the Chartists actually wanted back in 1848. But I must admit, if I was a Chartist... I would think to wait from 1848 to 1884 is too long. I'd be railing against the system. I'd be the most radical of liberals and I'd be waiting for the, for the Labour Party uh, to be formed and to jump on. Looking back at it, we can see the evolution, but there were a lot of tensions and pressures within British society. And I don't think we should take it as a given that we are immune to violent revolution because we've... Um, swerved it on, on, on a few occasions you know i'm sure you're right and having mentioned the labor party that segues nicely into a place to stop and we will come back to the labor party and two world wars in the next episode wait a minute you made it sound like the labor party caused the two world wars oh did i oops <laughs> <laughs> you put me in the conservative party seat pal you suffer the consequences okay well with that thought let's come back next time and see how the labor party causes two foot two world wars so it's goodbye from me <laughs> and this is a goodbye from me he's chuckling away a royal brand and these are the things that made england, england and saint george these are the things that made england Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.